0: Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes. And you can join us inside the community where there's 130 plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast
1: there was a program that was that was launched, the applications were out. It was called the African Young Women Leaders Program. It was a joint program between the African Union and the United Nations. And they were choosing 20 women from around the continent and 5,781 women applied for 20 positions. I know it's crazy, it just makes you feel, <laughs> it makes me feel so lucky, but at the same time, it just makes me realize how much the demand for opportunities is greater than the supply of opportunities. Just, It's not just luck. It just makes me feel like there's something broken in the system if this many people need jobs. Need great jobs, not just need jobs.
0: Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we're talking with Rowan Taha. Rowan most recently worked at the United Nations Development Program in Zambia as a program analyst, where she contributed to different sectors of development through eclectic programs and projects. She was part of the cohort of the African Young Women Leaders Fellowship a joint fellowship between the UNDP and the Africa Union Commission to employ, empower, and equip young women to become agents of change. Her work focused on two aspects of development, building inclusive and sustainable cities, and promoting gender equality. Rowan has an advanced certificate of African studies that she obtained through the National Training Academy in Egypt. She has a master's degree in public health from Swansea University in the UK. And through her various roles as an Arab and African leader, Rowan desires to portray female Africans in a positive light as powerful and courageous catalysts for change, particularly in the sectors of diplomacy and development. She envisions a long managerial career with the United Nations, where she continues to work on reforming Africa and building the humanitarian development nexus. Rowan is here with us today to share her experiences and ideas about international careers. Okay, so hi, Rowan. Rowan, I I just had the name honestly.
1: You did well, You did right, well. We'll do it
0: again. So anyway, thanks for joining us today on our next interview in our series. And I wanted to talk to you because I know that you're also sort of in that in young professional field. You're just getting started with your international career and you recently have just moved, I guess, and you can tell us a little bit more about that. But right. um, I'd like to just kind of understand your experiences and how you've kind of got started with the international careers and, and working for different international organizations like the UN. And then, you know, what your experience has been like so far? So maybe let's just start with an with an introduction
1: All and right, tell us cool. a little bit about yourself. Yeah, awesome. I'll tell you in a story form because I, I like being told stories. So I'll tell you in a story form. So I studied dentistry. I did my undergraduate studies in dentistry, which catches a lot of people off guard. Whenever I tell anybody I studied dentistry and now I work in international development, there are jaw drops. So I like to call that 180 degree transformation that's what it was for me. Shortly after my bachelor's degree, I realized that I did not want to become a doctor or a clinician and I wanted to help people. I knew that very much. like I cared about people very much. I wanted to help people, but it was very evident to me that I did not want to help them in my capacity as a clinician or a doctor. I wanted to help them. I just did not know how. During my undergraduate studies, I went to a public university in Cairo, so there was no career center or career support. We were not taught any transferable skills, like we never used the computer during university, we never used the library, we never had any written assignments, so I didn't know even how to reference or use Word or PowerPoint. But it became very clear to me very fast that I wanted to shift my career. I didn't know what I wanted to do and I knew I did not have much to offer if I was shifting and it would take me a long time and a lot of money if I wanted to transition. So shortly afterwards, I got a job at a hospital as a dentist working with the the Ministry of Health in Egypt, but I shifted my contract to a part-time basis so that I could start exploring other sectors while I was working so I could keep like bringing some money to support myself but i also just shifted my contract to a part-time basis so that i could start volunteering in the community gaining other skills and just exploring other fields that i did not have the chance to do because medicine is such an like it's a, such an overwhelming field i think if you you would think medical students would have the capacity to take elective courses and other things, but there is really no time. It's such a, it's such a draining and such a difficult field that no student would have the capacity to consume like other knowledge um, at the side of that. So I just started volunteering in various charities in the community. I was volunteering with two Egyptian NGOs. And after doing that for about two years, I as a, on a part time basis, I got a scholarship to study public health in the UK in Swansea University and that was kind of like my first big move or my first formal move towards like transitioning more into the social sciences I would say or more doing like more public work rather than doing clinical work. I did my master's, I finished my master's doing a master's degree in the UK is just one year so that was quite quick and afterwards I got a job in an NGO in Wales um, as a refugee health coordinator um, there was a lot of Syrian asylum seekers and refugees and they needed mm-hmm. somebody to speak in Arabic to support with their integration in the UK. And I was just there. I remember I popped into the office one, one day. I asked um, the receptionist. I was like, oh, I'm looking for a job. And she was just like, yeah, sure. Why don't you interview? Um, why don't you speak to the manager? And she interviewed me right after and I, and I got a job with them. Um, After being with them for a few months, my student visa expired and I had to leave, uh, which is a lot of it's a big problem for a lot of international students in the UK. Like after them studying and trying to integrate in the system and even after getting a job, you start kind of making money and getting settled in and then your visa expires and you have to leave and start over. So I had to leave, although my job was kind of to support people and try to bring them in and uh, to try to legalize their status. I just felt like everything was just... I couldn't do for myself what I was trying to do for others. And that was just a bit frustrating. So I went back to Egypt and with my non-traditional background and experience, it was very difficult to find a job. So during that period, I came back from the UK and I was, I came back in January and I was unemployed until about September. I was unemployed for nine months. Afterwards, and very very actively applying I'm not a lazy girl anyone will tell you that but <laughs> I was applying for hundreds of jobs I did so many interviews and I was not getting called back I think when it came down to it, it was always just me and another candidate or me and two other candidates and I could never make it to just to that final round. I just felt like whenever somebody would look at my cV it never made sense it didn't make sense to me, but I wasn't mm-hmm. really being given a chance to translate that CV into a story and to convince somebody that if they just gave me a chance, I'll be fine. And then I had applied during that period of unemployment. There was a program um, in Cairo called the African Presidential Leadership Program. It was in 2019 and Egypt at that time was um, heading the African Union. So every year, a different country heads the union. So at that time in 2019, it was Egypt and the Egyptian president. And there was a program that aimed to bring young Africans from all over the continent to teach them about international relations, diplomacy, sustainable development. And I'd applied to that program. I was unemployed already. I just wanted to network, meet some new people and just explore another horizon. I'd been applying for jobs in the UK. I wasn't really applying to jobs in Africa. I hadn't thought about it. And then after that program, I was like, wait, there's a whole other continent that has opportunities that I'm not looking at. Just I've just been excluding an entire continent. So shortly after that um, program, it was just kind of like a curtain open. I was like, oh, there's another continent that will appreciate my skills much more and that I'll be needed and much more helpful than, for example, trying to apply for jobs in the UK or the US where many other candidates have skills and qualifications like myself. So um, after that, there was a program that was, that was launched, the applications were out. It was called the African Young Women Leaders Program. It was a joint program between the African Union and the United Nations. And they were choosing 20 women from around the continent and 5,781 women applied for 20 positions. I know it's crazy. It just makes you feel, <laughs> it makes me feel so lucky, but at the same time, it just makes me realize how much the demand for opportunities is greater than the supply of opportunities. Just, it's mm-hmm. not just luck, it just makes me feel like there's something broken in the system if this many people need jobs need great jobs, not just need jobs. So I'd applied for that program and luckily I got selected. Um, I say luckily, but I know there was a lot of hard work, but it was just, it was just my foot in the door. So with that, I had my first international position. I was deployed to Zambia um, and I worked there for about 16 months. I had a great time. It was a beautiful country, beautiful opportunity. But after that, Again my contract ended and then I was unemployed again which people don't understand people think that once you have a job you have a job forever or people just don't understand the concept of a contract that's not fixed everybody people don't understand what right. a consultancy is or a fellowship or or like a service contract all they understand mm-hmm. is a contract. You have a contract, you know, like you're going to be working forever which, um But yeah, after I ended my contract with the UN as well, I was again unemployed for another um, three months this time, I would say. But I, I got better at the search. I had better experience. I had a better network. I did many more interviews in these three months than the first time when I was unemployed during the first nine months. So I think you garner a lot of experience along the way. And I just moved to Senegal, working with CRS, the Catholic Relief Services. I just started a new post, so yeah, that's the story.
0: <laughs> okay, that's a that's a good story. I think that there's there's lots to sort of unpack there. I'd like to ask you about. I mean, there's there's a lot of transitions, um, but something that you said, which kind of got my attention in the beginning, was that you said that you didn't feel like you had value, right, or a net value to to apply for some jobs or something like that why why is that is just because of the the different sort of education system that you're going through as far as higher education with your bachelor's degree or is it because you were transitional in your career field like going from dentistry or a health field to international development what caused you to think that you didn't have value to apply
1: i didn't think necessarily i did not have value i always i always like um I always bet on myself. I don't know I don't know if that's an expression, but I it's sure. like yeah, I always like uh, I've always believed in myself. The challenge for me was to get others to believe in or for to get others to believe in the value that I would add or just to get others to give me a chance. That was for me the challenge to get others to viewed mm. me the way I viewed myself. I I knew that on paper I did not make sense like just to try to convince right. somebody that a young woman who was born and raised in Saudi Arabia and studied in Egypt now wants to suddenly travel to the UK and pursue a degree about something she has not studied and get an international career. They, they just look at you and tell you you're dreaming, like you're competing with people who have skills that are more relevant people who perhaps studied in a language that was their mother tongue, people that have had other international experiences so I think it it also takes a lot, you know, recruiters and international organizations always talk about, you know, inclusion and diversity and like reducing gender gaps, but it takes a lot to actually like walk that talk and say, okay, we're gonna take a chance on somebody even if it's just to make sure we're ticking that box on inclusion. So it it takes a lot. A lot of people say, yeah, we're inclusive, or yes, we have um, gender balance, or yes, we have disabled people working for us, or yes, we have minorities, or we have people from different religions. But for them to actually go that extra mile and look for these people with the non-traditional backgrounds, or perhaps in my case, not necessarily to look for somebody maybe who comes from a village or to look from somebody that does not have great uh, technical skills, but are willing to be trained and you're going to invest to train them just so that you're not only ticking the box, but you're actually empowering somebody, you're actually uh, helping them to support themselves, you're using them as a role model for other people in their community that you know these organizations are inclusive and you don't necessarily have to know somebody to enter through the door you don't necessarily have to find a back door you you can apply through the system because a lot of people ask me that question like did you know somebody inside or you know did did, did you in Arabic we call it wasta like did you have did you have a wasta did you have like um somebody who is rooting for you and I was mm-hmm. just like I I am, sometimes I am skeptical. I'm just like, why do people always feel that way? Is it because they don't believe in themselves that they feel like they have to have somebody inside to let them in? Or is it because they don't believe in me? And I think by time when I started picking up confidence in my own skills, I was just like, if you think like that, I think you don't believe in yourself enough because I know that sometimes recruitments are not fair. I'm not oblivious to that. I know that sometimes job ads are posted with a candidate in mind, and you just post it for the sake of protocol. But there are many other times where that's not the case. Like organizations are really looking for talent. They're looking for people with different ideas. They're looking for people to really transform their own um, game. So they're looking for fresh ideas, new minds, young people, So I feel like if, I mean, if somebody is listening to this and they want to apply for something, I would say by all means, go for it. Like, why are you doubting yourself so much? If you don't believe in yourself, nobody's going to believe in you. It shows like I can, I've read applications before for various recruitments and you can tell somebody's voice is shaking. Even when you read their writing, you can tell, like, it's not... Um, You don't need like 20 years of human resource experience to, to tell that somebody does not believe in themselves or they're not confident. Nobody knows everything. But the point is like, you need to be teachable. You need to go as a humble expert. Nobody's expecting you to know everything. And like, even after working for a long time in one organization, when you go to another organization, you still become a beginner. It's your first day there. You don't understand the system. What you learned in school is often not relevant at all to what you're going to be doing at the job. So you always, your first day in any job, no matter how many years of experience you have, unless you're like, I mean, a surgeon or doing something that's just going to be repeated, it's still your first day. So um. I well, just feel if you're like, a
0: surgeon, I hope you know what you're
1: doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's why I said, like, okay, for some jobs, yeah, you're just, I mean, repeating sure. the procedure, but in a different place. But in other places, you need to follow along what's going on. Like, um, yeah, yeah. so it's just, I feel so much imposter syndrome happening in the development space.
0: Okay. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm glad you said it all. Well, a lot of that, I mean, because one of the things that we sort of teach in our course, and also when I, I talk to other people is we have to somehow disassociate the value chain here between international organizations and then us as candidates, right? Because there's such a high demand, as you've already correctly identified, there's such a high demand for positions and, or let's say a, you know, there's a a large supply of candidates and that the value is really with the international organizations, right? So they don't have to do anything beyond advertising that one post and they get a thousand applications, right? They don't have to market it. They don't have to promote it. They don't have to do outreach. They can basically just kind of announce it and they get thousands of applications. And so the value, you know, the value there is with the organization that's employing. But I think that we have to, at a certain point, as you said, you know, we have to look at ourselves and say like, look, we actually do have value here as the employee. And so it's about communicating that value. And it's also in a certain way, developing our own processes like you did when you're applying and and becoming more confident, developing our own system and sort of taking control back over from this sort of value dynamic that's happening because of the fact that many people I've talked to sort of correlate let's say experience with paid positions right so they say well i don't have any experience because i'm not somehow paid to have experience right so somehow affiliated directly with the job but that's also another sort of false belief that we have which is like you you have to ask for permission to have experience this is not true you know experience comes in many different forms you know and and the the experience that you've had throughout your career thus far has sort of contributed to this candidate that you are, the person that you are moving into the development space. And so, you know, there's there's a lot to sort of unpack there in terms of the, the way that we look at these things. And so I'm glad you sort of said that, you know, it's not value with me, it's communicating a value to the employer, um, because I think that's critically important for people who, especially those that get frustrated, like what you're talking about, you know, and, and then they start to believe, which I think to a certain extent was what happens is people apply and apply and apply. And they don't receive anything back. They they don't get any, you know, invitations for an interview or anything else. And they just come to believe that the system is rigged, right? So their experience has made them believe that the only way that you can get into the system is by knowing somebody. Now, like you, I've I've seen the system work for for 20 years now. It's not perfect, right? It's not perfect. Seconding authorities have a lot of say in the systems and things like that. But there is a system in place. And as a a hiring manager, when you sit on the board, like there's nobody's going to be able to help you if you're sitting on my board, for example, because it and you're interviewing with the candidate because we simply at that point, the system is in place and it's screening the applicants and things like that. Now, the way that networks help is the fact that they're able to tell you where positions are opening. But like you said, the, the application process is still the application process. There's still a formality behind it. You still have to perform with the written exams. You still have to perform well with the, the boards and the interviews. And I think that what I like about what you're saying as far as the storytelling piece is what we also talk about, which is like be good at telling stories because that's what people want to hear, right? They want to hear your story and your experiences. And, and that way you make the board feel comfortable and, and you know you become a better candidate. So that that's all very relatable stuff and i agree largely with the, much of what you said and that's what we also tell people as well but when you're when you've been going through these sort of transitions it's it's been interesting that, that you said that the first sort of transition you had was like nine months the second one was about three months what did you think was the, the real difference there was it was it simply just having the experience or did you think you got better at something what was the, what was the sort of the skills that you brought to that second transition in your career that you feel like was um made a difference for you?
1: It must have been multiple reasons, Kyle. It could mm-hmm. not have been just one reason. So I think that for the first time when I was unemployed and I was applying, I was kind of using uh, a job fishing mechanism rather than a job hunting mechanism. Just, you know, throwing my net far and wide in the ocean mm-hmm. and seeing what I would catch. Like, would I catch a fish or would I catch, you know, a forgotten shoe in the ocean Fine as well? Like I was just Not really thinking, I was not being strategic, I was exerting a lot of effort applying, but I was also kind of, I'm a bit introverted, I don't really like being around a lot of people, so I was not networking at all, I was not using my LinkedIn profile, nobody knew who I was. At the back of my mind, of course, I was also being picky. Like I was not applying for jobs with very small salaries or very small roles because I knew if I went to such an organization or such a place, I would not be fulfilled and I would be struggling to kind of motivate myself to perform the role because it was not what I wanted. I don't think that's great advice. Like take what you what's in front of you until you can get what you want. But still, I was not applying for very small jobs that perhaps I could have gotten with my non-existent experience and my foreign degree. But then the second time I was applying, when I returned from Zambia, I was using a much more of a a job hunting approach. You know, like a hunter is silent. He's patient. Like a hunter knows exactly what he wants. I had my eye on a prey or a few prey, like a few positions that I had my eyes on. And instead of applying for 10 jobs a week, I would perhaps apply for one or two jobs a week, but send really good applications. Applications that I know if there is a fair recruitment process, process happening right now and there's no other candidate in mind, my application will probably be shortlisted because I've read the job description really well. I, I mark like I've ticked yes to all of the desirable as well as we as, as well as the necessary criteria for the job. I have the relevant experience. I have good references. So if I felt like I had most of the criteria for the job, I would go for it as well. Uh, I don't necessarily think people should apply to jobs where they fit the entire package, because then it means there's no space for you to learn anything and you're overqualified if you're marking yes to everything. So I would say leave leave some room for growth. There should be some things that you can't do, but you would be very willing to learn or interested in. But yeah, so I was using that approach as well. So I was not using only one approach. I was networking. I was using LinkedIn. I was applying. I was trying to do like more than one thing at once and building my own portfolio too. So the first time I was unemployed, I was not making any money at all. But then the second time, I was also doing a bit of freelancing work. I was writing articles for a software company to make some money and to improve my writing skills as well. Um so I was doing something in parallel. So even when somebody would interview me, you can't say I'm applying for jobs every day. That's not an answer. So I would say I'm freelancing with a tech company, I'm learning French so that I could, you know, open more doors for myself professionally. I'm taking a lot of courses, even if they're not necessarily formal courses, but online courses, certified courses even if they're for free, just so that I can build my skill set in one, two, three, because I know it's needed in your company. So I was using my time a lot more wisely. I didn't like staying at home. I I generally don't. So to create a routine for myself, I I had rented out a space. I rented out a desk in a co-working space in Cairo. So every day in the morning, I forced myself to get up, get out of bed, change my clothes, take my laptop, drive to the working space and sit on my desk with people that are actually working, working so that I could, you know, take my day very seriously. So every day from eight to five, I would be applying or studying or doing something. I would take a break for lunch. But for most of the day, I had a schedule like a working professional. So I think that structure also made sure that there was no leeway for me to waste time. I couldn't wake up and, you know, like just sulk in bed all day or, you know, cry or just eat a bowl of ice cream in front of Netflix. I was not allowing myself to engage in all those like activities because I wanted to get out of the unemployment fast. And I knew that like if I had a structure for my day, I would be able to do this faster, especially now that the job market is not great because of COVID as well. So I knew I had to put in like a lot of effort. I had to be very strategic and not just leave it to, I'm going to throw my net out and see what I could get. I needed to be a very good hunter.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, and I think there's so much value in in focus, right? And focusing your efforts. And And as you said, and, and I believe there's sort of a, a downward spiral that we go through when we try and cast this wide net, because then you're not, you're sort of a mismatch for all these jobs you're applying for. And so then you don't get a response, right? And then when you don't get a response, you're like, well, I'm not a qualified candidate. And you just continue this kind of emotional downward spiral of like, I'm not qualified for anything. So I'll go work at McDonald's or whatever. And it's just like, that's not necessarily true. It's just the fact that you're not focusing your efforts. And I think if you find, at least it's been also my experience that if you find the right positions that you're wanting to apply for. And you focus your time less in sort of that job search piece. And you, you have a structure and a system in place. Then you focus on the quality of your application where it really matters because you really need to get to that interview. That's where you're going to sell yourself, you know, and, and then because most of the boards are generally like, you know, 60%, you know, interview and then 30, you know, 40% written exam or something like that. It's mostly for the, well, let me say generically for the most part, the, the oral board is, is weighted more than the written exams. And so being able to get there is gonna be able to help you so much in terms of a job search strategy. But in order to do that, like you said, you have to have a very good application, right? To get ahead of the competition. Yes. So let's let's talk a little bit about your your transition now. So you, you've moved to a new country. What's that like for you? How is that um, going? What are the kind of the thoughts now that you're, how long have you been there now? So,
1: Oh, I got here around three weeks ago.
0: Okay, so three weeks in, how's it going?
1: (laughs) Some days are good, some days are scary. (laughs) But it takes a lot of resilience to move from country to country. Um, You get better at it, I think, along the way. You just know what to expect. It becomes kind of less stressful. But it's still scary trying to just navigate your life all over just to know where to go to the supermarket and how to take a taxi and to try to learn a new language and find a new gym, make new friends. It's just, you know, the social aspects of moving for me are always harder than the work itself. Technically, I'm finding that I'm able to adjust when I shift from one organization to the other or one portfolio to the other, because I've just developed a skill set that is transferable. So even if I go somewhere else, I still feel like I can manage to write, I can manage to communicate, I can negotiate, I can write a proposal. But for me, I, I struggle to integrate in the community. I struggle to make friends or I struggle to, you know, have relationships or start over, especially that I know I'll only be here for a year maximum, mostly contracts like mine last nine months. So I'm thinking about it, like if I'm here till September, what kind of activities would I want to be involved in or how do I want to spend my money if I know that I will not be using whatever I buy for so long? So I feel like it's always more difficult for me socially than it is professionally. But you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to be perceived as, you know, the weak young woman who is unable to integrate in society. So feel like people just like normally dance around these topics and they, they make it seem like it's much easier than it is. But yeah, some, some days are harder than others. I do try to, I'm trying to like try, um, find new things. So I joined the gym recently. There was one class at the gym where the trainer spoke English. It's called Calsenics. It's like gymnastics. Um, so I, I enrolled in that class, although I'm 30, not very flexible, don't know anything about gymnastics, but, um, the trainer spoke in English and I was like, I might as well go to that class where I understand what the trainer is talking about. And that might make it easier for me to pick up at least on the French so that I could join another class in the gym later on. So yeah, you just don't talk about these little nuances, but it does make it uncomfortable somehow, but you manage. You don't realize how much stronger you've become until it's time to drive back to the airport to leave. You're like, oh, I, I'm a different person now. I learned a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think because people don't talk about it, and and this is some of the conversations I've had in, in other interviews is like we, as when you work in the international community, we don't really understand why we're not talking about these things. But it's so, it's so critically important to understand if you, especially if you want to work internationally, what exactly are you getting into, you know, and, and before this session, you and I were sort of talking about, you know, contracts and like the limitations on contracts and do the real question is, do people really understand what's happening when they leave their country, right? So it's like, okay cell phone, phone, utility, rent, you know, your apartment, what are you going to do with that? Your car, where are you going to put that? You know, like living with this life adjustment of putting things on hold in your own country or selling everything, whatever you want to do. And that's still something you have to deal with. And then, you know, the entire sort of mental and emotional thing of landing in a new country, which, you know, like, like, like you said, it's a, a certain degree of resilience you have to build. And, you know, I've, I think that is something that you had to be, I I don't know, I don't want to say, how can I say this, I think it's inherent in a lot of people that want to work internationally, that they have this sort of resilience, right, because if you didn't have it, you wouldn't think about leaving your own country anyway. Right, so I think it's inherent in a lot of the people that do want to work internationally that they have this sort of ambition, this interest, this curiosity, that they want to satisfy this kind of global perspective, and so then they want to work internationally. But I think that we never really do talk about what it means mentally and emotionally to to deal with these things. I mean, I spent two and a half years in Afghanistan, and, and that takes an emotional toll, a physical toll, and you know the the isolation is and it's isolation. And I think you're right too because I experienced that when I came to Ukraine. Right, it's like. Isolation is not just physical isolation. There's isolation in terms of like linguistics. Like when you can't read, you know, in this case, Cyrillic, or you can't read, you know, or write or speak the language, you're you're fundamentally isolated from society. And, and I think people don't sort of understand that. And it's a very interesting dynamic about international careers.
1: Well, to be so, fair, Kyle, my, sorry, I interrupted you. My, um, current supervisor who is American was telling me, he's like, listen, if you go to the U.S. and you don't speak in English, people are going to be a lot less nice to you than they are now (laughs) with your broken French (laughs) in a French country. So I was like, that made me feel a bit better because, yeah, I I can imagine people in the U.S. would not be very (laughs) accommodating if you didn't speak a word of English and they had to kind of include you in everything.
0: (laughs) But the problem is like, you know, the U S is so big that they don't know anything other than English. Right. And so (laughs) it's just, it's just, it's a, it's a world upon itself. Right. Right. And so that's where it's um, working internationally is very interesting. And from the dynamic of the fact that even if you're in New Europe or in Africa, it's just the different, you know, traveling a few hours and you hit an entirely different culture is extremely interesting. But in terms of when you, when you've arrived in another country and things like that, like, so. And I kind of want to keep that centered on careers a bit more. You worked a bit back at home and and now you're working sort of in another country. How do you view these things as being different? Do you see there's a difference between, you know, working normally in your home city versus working internationally? Is it really fundamentally different for you? I mean, because you said that like when you're leaving, you notice that you've changed. Yeah. And so what what sort of is causing that change? I agree with you because I noticed that I've grown. As a person as well, but I mean, it, it sometimes is hard to quantify. And so I just wanted to ask: Is it sort of is it different from you in terms of like I'm working at home and working abroad?
1: Um, I think both on a professional and a personal level. Like on a personal level, there's lots of things you have to take care of on your own without any support that you would naturally have support for at home. Like I never learned how to drive when I was in Egypt. I always had like somebody drop me off or. I would just hang around with one of my friends. But when I moved to Zambia, although I was 27, 28, I'd never learned how to drive. And all of a sudden I was in a country where public transportation was not great or it was not available. There were no taxis. And I felt like I was physically isolated at home if I don't learn how to drive. So I had to learn how to drive. Like it was not even optional. So that's something, that's a small example of something that you probably at home there's normally you have a support system you have friends you have neighbors you have someone to call if you if something goes wrong but when you suddenly move to another country you just realize that you are your own person like you probably don't know many people you don't have an emergency contact to put down in the country when you get there and all these little things make you feel like you really have to take care of yourself from every aspect because if you don't i mean who was going to drive me to the supermarket to get food or to the pharmacy or to get errands done just things like that so you 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 pick up very quickly that you don't work on your own insufficiencies nobody will be there at least at the beginning to fill in these gaps and you will make life much more difficult for yourself so In turn, that strengthens your character because you realize that you're capable of a lot more than you thought you were capable of. So perhaps like at home, I would think, oh, it's hard to drive or I want somebody to do something for me. Or if I'm sick, I couldn't really take care of myself. And then you realize that you are able to do these things for yourself. I mean, as humans, that's not how we're wired. We're wired so that we can take care of each other and support one another. And and that's great. I mean, it's it's the best feeling in the world to have somebody take care of you as well. But it's just you realize that you could also do that for yourself. And if somebody were to do that for you, it will feel so much better. But you need to know that you're also capable of doing these things for yourself first. And it just enhances your independence and builds your resilience so much. And professionally, it's the same. Like, A lot of the things after you're hired nobody's going to give you a salary at the end of the month as a favor so you also don't want to be like the new person who's incompetent of doing certain things so for me if i did not know how to do something i would ask for help i would seek further training i would try to take a course or um just work on these skills on my own like if i was not great at excel i would take a course on excel or try to work on more excel spreadsheets Because you want, you not only want to build your portfolio, but you want to build your image. You want to be somebody, a lot of the national staff as well, because of the discrepancy of how national staff and international staff are paid. Mm -hmm. If they don't view you as somebody who's very competent, then it just appears as if you're hired internationally and you're not really bringing value and you're being paid in a foreign currency, whereas they're probably being paid less. So you also don't want to send that image. You want to do justice um, to your job so that others can view you in a professional light and they could respect you as well for what you bring to the table, not only from a diversity point of view and ticking the box, but from like a professional stand view that this person is adding to our team by being here.
0: Yeah. We could talk about the different dynamics between that alone, the, the national and international piece uh, quite extensively, but, um, <laughs> but um, let's, Let me, we're going sort of closer to an hour already. I'll just let's end with kind of a question on um, looking back across your experiences. Now, if somebody was starting out, say they're just graduated from university, say they just finished their master's, which again, right or wrong, all the most, well, I can't say all, but most of the international organizations, especially the larger ones are master's degree organizations, right? So we find that most people are graduating with their master's and they want to work internationally. Um, what are some of the, the things that you would do differently if you were starting over, if you were them knowing what you know now?
1: um, That's a great question, Kyle. It's a lot of things, but I would say, first of all, for a lot of people, they graduate or they finish their master's and then they're just in this paralysis mode that they've always been in a state in their life where they're being told, okay, after your degree, you're going to do um, your master's or after high school, you're going to go to college. And all of a sudden, you have no guidance, you have no manual to see you through. And then people just become a bit like paralyzed, like they don't know what to do. And I would say that's that for me is extremely dangerous and it's not going to get you anywhere. It's just a vicious circle of you being paralyzed and not making any progress on your career. So I would say if you're in this state. Right now, where you are unemployed, you just graduated and you feel this, um, you just feel so stuck. I would say start anywhere. It does not matter where you start and it does not matter what you do. But remaining in paralysis is often so much worse than taking an actionable decision and trying something new. Even if you've made a mistake, it is much more likely that the mistake will be um. Um, less harmful than your career trajectory than just doing nothing. So that's like something I would really tell people, just start, start with something, start anywhere, but just start. Another thing is that's a trap that I fell in and a lot of people fell in is I always thought I had to choose a niche. Like I thought I had to be like 22, 23, and I needed to know that I wanted to become, for example, a gender expert or um, to know everything about food security, which I don't believe is necessarily true. Um, I don't think you have to choose a niche to succeed. It is probably great to know everything about one field and then to branch laterally and to know multiple things about different fields. But I feel like somebody that has multiple interests, don't try to silence those interests. Your multiple interests make you interesting and can make you very lucrative to a recruiter, especially in an international career where you have to be often very flexible and to move from one post to another or one portfolio to another. So don't try to kind of kill that drive or kill that... um, passion to learn and read more about different topics and pursue different things because I feel like that's also something that makes you very interesting I don't know if there's anything else but another like just maybe one last thing I would say that don't rely on passion or don't rely on waiting for that eureka moment that you're gonna wake up and everything is gonna fall into place it is much more sustainable to rely on your grit, to rely on consistency, to rely on forcing yourself to do things even when you don't feel great. So don't wait, if you're unemployed and you feel like you have all the time in the world, you don't have all the time in the world, you have a lot to do. So I would just say consistency is what will help you fill out all these hundreds of job applications. Consistency will help you improve your interview skills. Your grit will help you pick up on the skills that you don't know, but your passion and your random bouts of energy probably will not get you very far. So try to do things every single day, just a consistent amount of effort, even if it's not a whole lot of hours a day, but your consistency will get you much further than you know your passion, I believe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's great advice. Okay, Rowan, Rowan. Oh, Okay. So anyway, thank you. Thank you very much for your time and also for your your insights. It's been very interesting and very helpful. And certainly keep us posted on where you're going uh, in, your, in your future international career. It'd be very interesting to follow you and see where you're going. If anybody yeah. wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you?
1: I'm on LinkedIn. My name is Rowan Tahat. That's R-A-W-A-N-T-A-H-A. And another thing that there is a a small secret project. Well, when you publish this interview around in September, it will no longer be a secret. I am currently writing a book. It's like a handbook or a manual about unemployed youth and like actionable advice that they could um, follow through to land a job. It's advice I wish somebody had told me when I was going through these things. And I'm trying to put that together and get it published. So hopefully if somebody's looking for me, they can find me there too.
0: Great, fantastic. We'll look forward to make sure to let us know when you uh, have your book out and we'll certainly help you distribute that.
1: All right, thank you, Kyle.
0: (laughs) Okay, all right. right, thanks for your time and uh, wish you the best of luck and we'll be seeing you in the future.
1: All right, thanks, Kyle.
0: Thanks.